Good morning. My name is Casey Converse. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. The word of the Lord. My name is Martha, and the New Testament reading is found in 2 Corinthians 1, 18-22. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The word of the Lord. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading. My name is Jim Cole. We're going to be reading today from Luke 1, 5 through 10. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, While he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. The gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this place. Come and flood our hearts. Give us eyes to see Jesus this morning, give us ears to hear your word to us this morning, and give us hearts that are soft and able to receive, that you might change us and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, as you've caught on by now, it's the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is the season of preparation leading up to Christmas. Christmas is its own season that actually lasts 12 days. So if you want to literally celebrate it from December 25th all the way through January 5th as a season of celebration, you can most certainly uh, do that. Here at New Life Downtown, we kind of mark each of the Sundays in Advent to help us journey through it. And next week, we'll begin a series that's specifically about uh, expectation and, and what it means to journey through Advent with expectation. But today, um, I, I thought it would be appropriate to, as a sort of a segue between our, the, uh, the series we've been in, tuned in, and the season we're about to start with Advent, I thought it would be appropriate to actually bring our series on listening to God to a close by talking about what to do when God is silent. 
So here we've had five weeks of, of saying, God speaks, he's a speaking God. Behold, Jesus is the culmination of what God has to say. And we talked about listening to God through the scriptures and listening to God for guidance and listening to God through one another and listening to God through life, uh, through beauty and story. Right away at we, on week one, I got an email from a, a good friend who said, Glenn, I, I love that you're doing a series called Tuned In and Listening to God, but I hope you will address the times when God is silent. And I said, yeah, that's the plan. It's going to be there in the final week. And I thought, how perfect to put it in on this first Sunday of Advent, because Advent is this time of waiting and aching and longing. And sometimes we forget that those are part, those things are part of the Christian life. Sometimes we imagine that the Christian life is all miracles and the supernatural and encounters with God and, and manna falling from the sky and water from the rock and miracles in the grocery store line, you know, and we think this is the normal Christian life. It's full of extraordinary stuff. And if you think that, you're probably set up for some disappointment at some point. Maybe you've prayed for someone and it didn't happen. Maybe you were expecting a miracle and nothing changed. And then you're thinking, well, maybe the problem is me. Maybe the problem is me because the Bible is full of stories of God doing extraordinary things and God bursting on the scene. And we have this impression that the Bible is a series of supernatural things. And therefore, if our lives don't look like that, something must be wrong with us. Maybe we don't have enough faith. Maybe we don't have enough courage. Maybe we didn't do something right. Maybe we prayed the wrong prayer. Maybe we addressed the Father instead of the Son. Maybe we didn't say, come Holy Spirit. Maybe we didn't. It might be worth kind of backing up and saying, does the Bible really contain a nonstop list of miracles? Perhaps we don't notice this, but actually the stories in the Scriptures are like the highlight reel of the story of the people of God. That there's actually an extraordinary amount of time that lapses between things. For example, the two great figures in the Old Testament, the two towering figures of, of, of God speaking, of God directing, of God guiding, of God intervening, were Moses and Elijah. These, these figures were such towering figures in the Old Testament that Jesus, when he goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, it's Moses and Elijah that are with him. They represent the great pillars of the Old Testament story. But do you know how much time is between Moses and Elijah? About 500 years. So you've got Moses who does these 10 plagues and the stories of rescuing them from Egypt and the Red Sea parts and then manna's from the sky is falling while they're in the desert and all of this stuff. And you're like, Moses! And then you've got to wait 500 years. And then you've got Elijah. Well, but Elijah was awesome. I mean, Elijah called down fire from heaven. I mean, Elijah, the great prophet. And then you have another 900 years from Elijah to Jesus. All of a sudden, we're thinking through the list and we're realizing there are hundreds of years that go by without an extraordinary miracle. How do you live? How do you live in those times? The gap between the Old Testament narrative and where Jesus starts, the gap is about 400 years. Sometimes commentators call it the 400 years of silence. Because there wasn't an extraordinary prophetic word, there wasn't a visitation from God, there wasn't anything that reminded them that the supernatural life was full of excitement. Now, I know somebody somewhere will say, oh, Glenn, 
That's the Old Testament. We are New Testament people. The book of Acts, brother, is full of miracles. The book of Acts takes place over 30 years in about half a dozen cities. If you were to average out the miracles in the book of Acts over 30 years in six or seven different cities, it'd be about one miracle every 20 years or so, right? Now you're like, what? I thought everywhere they went, it was like, bam, 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 you know? It's like, that's the Holy Ghost, you know? Like, I want the Spirit-filled life. Do you mean to tell me that the early Christians had ordinary moments? Times that felt painfully dry, difficult? Yes. And rather than that being discouraging, my hope for you this morning is that it is profoundly encouraging. Because the stuff of your daily life is the stuff where God is present. And in the moments of your silence, in the moments of God's silence, there is still a way to be faithful. There's still a way to be the people of God. Look, if, if the Bible was, was literally full of miracles and supernatural all the time, we would say, oh, there's no room for me. I don't know what to do with my life because my life, I, I get up, I brush my teeth, I eat breakfast, I have a coffee, I go, I go to work. Uh, am I a second-rate Christian? Am I second class? Or is there something to learn from the, the way of living, the way of being, even through the ordinary? But let's not just talk about the ordinary. What about the profound moments of silence? Have you ever had seasons where you turn to pray and you're just not sure if God is there? Where you open your Bible and you don't have a rhema word from God? Where you lift your hands in worship and you're like, I, I don't I mean, I'm sort of, yeah, he's there, he's not there. What about when there's no joy? What about when it's dull? What about when it's not just ordinary, it feels dry and dead and barren? It feels like the heavens itself are closed. How do we be Christian? How do we live Christianly in the midst of that? Well, I want to say three things to us this morning from the Scriptures. And the first is this. We keep showing up. We keep showing up. What do you do when God is silent? What do you do when it doesn't seem like he's listening? You keep showing up. This story here in Luke 1, verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, listen, in that little short phrase is jam-packed a whole bunch of significant things. Herod was this sort of half-Jewish king that the Jews, the true Jews didn't really want him to be king of Judea. But he was a puppet king that Rome had sort of said, hey, you get to be in charge because it'll kind of appease the Jews, but really we know that you're loyal to Rome and so you'll do what we want. So even by Luke saying, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, it was like saying, in that miserable time where everybody was unhappy with political rulers. You're like, oh, I can relate to that. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Why is he saying this? He's saying, look, she comes from a great lineage, Aaron, Aaron who was there with Moses. There's some memory of a supernatural time, and yet that was not their time. Some legacy of godliness and of deliverance and of miracles, and yet they were living in a difficult era. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child. Now the difficulty becomes personal. 
It's not just that the political landscape was troubling, it was that their personal lives were difficult. They had no child. That can be difficult even for us, but in a Jewish context, in the first century Jewish context, it was symbolic of, for them, it would have felt like God himself had turned his face away from them. Barrenness is a prophetic image of a life that is not favored. Now, we don't, say, we don't take it that way in our day, but for them, this is what it would have meant. And then it says, while he was serving as priest before God when, the, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood. Now, we know the rest of the story, how an angel visits him and says, you're going to have a child, and this child's going to be John the Baptist and all this stuff. But look, before any of that, Zechariah is doing his duty. Doing his duty. <laughs> I think in our day, in our age, the idea of showing up as a matter of duty is kind of, it's sort of disparaged. We don't like it. We are romantics. We're, we're sort of the legacy of the post-romantic era where we think it's great to do something because you should. It's better to do something because you want to. So you'll make plans for the weekend, but if the weekend comes and you're like, I don't really feel like doing that anymore, you'll cancel. You'll be like, hey, uh, something came up. Uh, not going to make it to the party. Like, uh, I thought we were planning on you to bring the... You know. It's like, well, I just, I'm not feeling it. Just not going to come. You know, feel like a Netflix night, you know. And all of a sudden, we, we, we have this sense of saying, well, look, if you don't feel it, don't do it. And if you feel it, do it. But hey, this whole idea of doing something because you, it's your ritual or your duty, it's like, oh, that's... <laughs> and, and actually, that feeling in our culture at large is actually pronounced, I think, when it comes to God and church where we're like, I'll come to church if I really believe in my church. I'll come and worship God if I'm really feeling close to God. But if I'm not, I, brother, I just don't want to be a hypocrite. Did you know that hypocrisy is not when your actions contradict your emotions? Hypocrisy is actually when your actions contradict your convictions. I'll say that again. Hypocrisy is not when your actions contradict your emotions. You're like, well, I don't, I don't feel that, so therefore I should not. Hypocrisy is when your actions contradict your convictions. Zechariah had a conviction and he had a commitment and he had a duty and it was his custom to serve. And so he says, well, I'm on. I'm going to be there. I'm supposed to show up. I'm supposed to show up. I'm going to keep showing up. I think when we imagine the, the, the remarkable people who serve in our world, who who do extraordinary things for God, we imagine that these people are just so close to God that they feel His presence all the time, and that's how they're able to serve the poor. And that's, you know, if I felt so full of compassion, I would be a missionary too. But when you talk to missionaries and when you talk to people who give their lives in service, you'll discover something shocking. They have difficult days. They have days when they're not overflowing with compassion. They, don't have, they have days when they're not full of, ha, I'm going to get up and love people today. But they just do it anyway. Who's the greatest figure in our generation that represents serving the poor? Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, we think, well, Mother Teresa, she must have been special. She must have had this special thing from God that, that you know, was the reason she was able to serve and do what she did. Well, it began that way. 
At age 36, she was serving in Calcutta, and she got ill, and so she decided to take a little break, and so she took a train to a different part of India, and at age 36, it was on that train ride that she felt God speak to her and say, you need to start this new charity. And so she started her charity to serve the least of these, the very poorest of the poor, but a surprising thing happens when she got there and she started the charity a few years into it. She was plunged into the deepest darkness of her life. Deepest darkness. In fact, it was only after her death that her letters to the Archbishop of Calcutta were revealed, her journal entries and all this stuff, and she wrote things like, I don't know if God is there. And she said, I, what I mean is, I'm not even sure that he exists. One of the stories about this says, in that time, with the aid of a priest, who acted as her spiritual director, Mother Teresa concluded that these painful experiences could help her identify not only with the abandonment Jesus Christ felt during the crucifixion, but also with the abandonment that the poor felt daily. Here she is feeling this darkness, not able to know, God, where are you? Do you even exist? Are you real? And starting to then, instead of saying, no, I'm not going to do this anymore, starting to say, maybe this abandonment that I feel is what the poor feel every day. Maybe this is what Jesus felt on the cross. And so she hoped to enter the very dark places of people's lives, the lives that she served. And in that way, Mother Teresa's doubt may have contributed to her effectiveness. Her doubt may have contributed to her effectiveness. She wrote, if I ever become a saint, she wrote, I will surely be a saint of darkness. Keep showing up. I'm so challenged by that story because for Mother Teresa, unlike the stories of other saints who went through dark nights, for Mother Teresa, the story is that she experienced this for decades. For decades in prayer, she felt nothing. For decades in prayer, she wrestled with doubt for decades in prayer, she wasn't sure if God was there, but she kept showing up. And let that doubt be the very thing that helped her sense the pain and the abandonment of the people she was serving, so that even her doubt became part of her effectiveness. I don't know about you, but that, that grips me. That moves me. That's like Zechariah saying, oh God, it's been 400 years of silence, and that horrible fox Herod is on the throne and my wife and I are barren we have no hope but I'm going to keep showing up to the temple keep serving keep showing up the second thing that we can learn from the scriptures about what to do how to wait through the silence is to wait with hope to wait with hope our psalm this morning was from psalm 62 for God alone O my soul wait in silence there's the psalmist. There's plenty of psalms about the loud singing and the instruments and the celebration and the party, but at this moment, the psalmist is saying, you can wait in silence. You can wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He alone is, the ro is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Wait, but wait with hope. Wait but wait with hope. In silence, yet not despair. 
You know, there's, there's a way to let our waiting kind of spiral downwards into despair. To begin to say, well, I don't know. I don't know if this is ever going to change. I don't know if this is going to get better. I don't know about the world. I don't know about my life. I don't know about the sickness. I don't know about this. I don't, uh, uh, uh. And I want to say to you that in order to wait with hope, you have to view a higher horizon, a further horizon. When you look at this horizon and wait, all you'll have is despair. Well, I don't know how this relationship is going to be. I, I don't know how this marriage is going to work. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. This is the horizon. Hope requires you to see a different horizon. Hope requires you to say, well, okay, what is the very worst? This, this, this. Okay, okay, great. You know what? That's not the end of the horizon. There's one thing further. Hope requires you to see a higher horizon, a further horizon, to have a different view that says, no, 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 there's something beyond that. And for the Christian, we say there's something even beyond death. I know we live in an age of fear. And in our fear, we're tempted to do everything we can to ensure our own self-preservation. But I want to say to you that that kind of thinking has a limited horizon. If you think that this world is all there is, if you think that death is the very worst thing, then you will do everything you can to protect your territory within this horizon. But if you know that there is a horizon beyond death, there is a horizon beyond this world. We said it in the creed, didn't we? We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. See, Christians are looking at a different horizon. We're looking at a different horizon. You can say, well, what is it? What's the worst that can happen here? I'm rejected and I die a painful death. Fill in the blanks. What is the worst that could happen here? And then say, you know what? There's a horizon beyond that. And it's a horizon that only God can bring, a horizon of a world made new, a horizon of a body resurrected again. That's the day I'm looking to. That's the horizon I'm looking at. And it's not that you've become sort of a a sadist about it, that you're like, yes, I want pain. No, you're not. You're not sort of becoming kind of a masochist or whatever. it's, It's that you understand that this isn't the final horizon. So your eyes are somewhere higher. If you wait with hope, it means you're waiting by looking somewhere else. This week, I um, I posted a picture on Instagram of of, uh, our kids skiing, but and it was an epic picture, you know, because they're all there and they're like this. And I and I and I said on the picture, I said, actually, what you don't know is that moments after this picture was taken, like they all went into instantaneous meltdown mode, you know. It was like our, our three-year-old was all of a sudden crying and could not articulate what was wrong, you know, uh, and would not allow anyone to hold her or carry her or whatever. And then our, our, our six-year-old was like, all of a sudden, those ski boots that he had been in for three hours had just, it had just hit the limit of like, I hate these boots. I can't move my ankles, you know. I mean, I feel that way, to be honest, but that's why I don't do it anymore, but... Um, and there's this limit where all of a sudden it's like, I hate this. This is the worst, you know. And I posted the picture and I said, this is so great because you need to know all the stuff that surrounds this. But I also think the pictures matter because snapshots of joy are what fill us with hope. 
Snapshots of joy are what fill us with hope. C.S. Lewis called it the stabs of joy. They're not permanent. They don't last forever. You don't have this like, ah, I've got it. This is it, full and complete joy. No, in life, you get kind of stabs of joy. It's like, oh, that was awesome. That was so great. Oh, I love that. And then it's like, everyone starts fighting, you know. (laughs) Thanksgiving dinner. It's like, so, so amazing. And then someone brings up politics, you know. Stabs of joy. But stabs of joy matter because stabs of joy remind us that there's another horizon. It says, no, look, 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 look. There's something beyond this. So we wait with hope. But the last thing I want to say that I think we can learn from the Scriptures is that we can trust what we know about God. As we wait in hope, as we keep showing up, this isn't just sort of good old-fashioned, you know, commitment and sort of uh, humanistic kind of morality, like, I'm just going to do the right thing. No, 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 no. This is all anchored in what we know about God. Why do we keep showing up? Why do I have hope? Because I'm fooling myself? Because it's mind over matter? No, because I'm trusting what I know about God. Sometimes you'll hear a preacher try to make a sharp distinction between faith and trust, but actually in the the Scriptures in the New Testament, that word for faith is very closely connected with the word trust. That pistis, that Greek word for faith, is this idea of placing your trust in someone. And so there's there's not as hard of a a distinction as, as we sometimes think, well, that's trust, but this is faith. Faith, biblically, is about trusting in the faithfulness of another, surrendering to. Faith is a confidence in another person's character that inspires you to surrender. Faith is a confidence in another person's character that inspires surrender. You're like, I trust your character so much that I surrender to you. That's what it would be like. When you're, when you're following um, a leader in a, in a wilderness trail, and you say, I don't know where I'm going, and I don't know what I'm doing, but I trust your character and your expertise and your skill, Joey Jimenez, that I will follow you into the wilderness. Not literally, but maybe. And you say, I, I, my surrender to follow is, is based on the fact that I trust your character. I, 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 I have confidence in your character. Faith in the Scriptures is about confidence in the character of God. Interestingly enough, Jesus never directs our faith toward an outcome. You will never find in the Gospels Jesus saying, believe for healing. Never happens. He never says, believe for this. In fact, there are 30 times in the New Testament where the word faith is followed by a preposition. Sorry to get all grammar on you. But the preposition is always in. Faith in, never faith for. So I hate to burst the bubble of the TV preachers that say, I have faith for a million dollars, and I have faith for a private jet. You can have faith for anything you want, but it wouldn't be the Jesus kind of faith. Because the Jesus kind of faith is not faith for anything. It's faith in someone. Have faith in God. Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Have faith in me. The object of our faith is always a person and never an outcome. 
The object of our faith is always a person and never an outcome. Listen, this will be a game changer for you. Because if the object of your faith is an outcome, then when outcomes change, so does your faith. Right? If your faith is focused on an outcome, then when outcomes are good, you're like, I just love God. I got a new job. I'm so happy. My faith is so strong right now. And then all of a sudden things go south. And things start falling apart. You're like, oh, man, this is really testing my faith. Because your faith was fixed to an, object, to an outcome, and outcomes fluctuate. Outcomes will always fluctuate. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Don't fix your faith on a world that fluctuates. Don't fix your faith on an outcome that can be good and can be bad. Fix your faith on God, who is faithful. Fix your faith on God, who is faithful. Psalm 62 goes on, verse 7, on God rests my salvation and my glory. There it is. The psalmist is telling us, how can I wait in silence but with hope? Because it's on God. On God alone rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah, the rock, the never-changing, the God who always keeps his promise. How do we know this? How do we know that this is true about God? Again, we're tempted to look back at our life experiences and to say, well, I know this is true because God has always come through for me. That's good. That's not bad. That's part of how we strengthen our faith is by testimony and reminding us that that's good, but it's not ultimate. How do you fully trust that God is faithful? Because Jesus came. Because Jesus came. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. What a phrase. All the promises of God find their yes in him. That's another way of saying Jesus is the culmination of everything God said he would do. God said he would rescue his world. God said he would put it back together again. God said he would not abandon us. God said, God said, God said. How do I know he's going to do it? Because Jesus came. Because Jesus came. And so in the end, our trust in who God is comes into focus, not when we look at our life experiences, because sometimes our life experiences, it's like looking through a dirty lens, right? It's good and bad. Sometimes I think we're looking at God and we're saying, God, I want to trust your character, but we're looking at his character through a windshield that is kind of muddy. And we're like, sometimes you've been good, but sometimes I don't don't know, man. And God's saying, now here, let me give you a different lens. It's the lens of the cross. Let me show you that The second person of the Trinity came and took on flesh, was born of a woman, walked this earth, suffered death, was crucified and buried, and on the third day he was raised again. He ascended into heaven. This is how you know the faithfulness of God. Not just from your life experiences, but because Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise God made. 
All of his promises find their yes in Christ. This morning, my invitation to you is is not to gut this out and white-knuckle it when God is silent. Be like, okay, well, I'm just going to... But to let the faithfulness of God revealed in Christ give you the strength to keep showing up, to wait with hope because you're seeing a different horizon, and to trust the very character of God. Your worst will not be the last. Your worst moment will not be the last word. Having faith in God doesn't mean bad stuff won't happen. It just means that God gets the last word. The God who came and died and rose again, he gets the last word. Friends, that is what fills us with hope. That is what fills us with hope to keep waiting, keep showing up, keep trusting. Amen? This morning as we come to the table, I I want us to remember what a beautiful picture it is when we come each week with our hands like this. We come to the table not to feed ourselves, but to receive what has been given. To say, Jesus, it is your faithfulness that is my strength. It is your strength that brings me life. It is your body and your blood 